Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. So welcome to this episode of the 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. And I hope in the current situation, everybody is keeping well. One of the big things around human factors is the ability to work out if something is actually fit for purpose. And really, from any other product design that we do um, or anything, things could be quite easily tested. But obviously, with the user input, it's potentially very, very subjective. Yet, we need to be able to quantify or qualify what we're actually doing to provide um, some measure of value for money or just some level of assurance that actually what we're doing is actually fit for purpose. So that is normally solved by us doing some level of trial or assessment. But being that it involves people, then it's not as straightforward as a simple science experiment. This is why this episode is looking at the, the trials and assessments in the human factors world. And my guest today is somebody who has had lots of experience in uh, delivering lots of different types of trials and assessments. And is hopefully going to at least allow us to scratch some of the surface. So I'd like to introduce uh, Vicky Wall. Welcome, Vicky. Before we get into how you got here, um, what is your current role? What is it you actually do? So currently I'm a principal human factor engineer working for VA systems. So I spend a lot of my day looking at uh, the usability of systems, trying to make them usable or operable by the user. And that can be anything from physical aspects of the design to um, so, so physical, physical reach, physically getting through spaces or um, uh, the human-computer interaction, um, looking at the design of, of um, pages of information that they interact with and, and uh, the user interface um, and trying to, get those, trying to get those right, trying to get the level of information that you give to people right, trying to make them tolerant to error or to try to design out error. And, um, and as you said, Barry, just trying to make it fit for purpose for the user and, and easy for them to use. Cool. So... You've been in your your current role for a um, for a few years now. It's fair to say, but you've um, but you've had quite a um, um, a long career path so far. So, where did you start off with? Where which where, where did you go to university, and where where did it uh, go from there? So, actually, um, I started in human sciences. I studied psychology um, at Lancaster University. It's quite ironic that's not that far from where I'm living now. Uh, <laughs> I've lived in various other places in between. Um, but yeah, so human sciences is my background. Um, I then kind of went back home after university from Bedford, went back to Bedford, and uh, through chance really, just ended up working down the road, um, Dera Bedford. Dera was a defence evaluation research agency. Mm-hmm. It was just a job in the local paper. It wasn't actually even a graduate role. Um, um, I I didn't really know, didn't have a clear idea of what I was going to do um, after I studied psychology. I just really enjoyed the, the subject area and the topic, found it interesting. I initially thought of going down sort of uh, clinical psychologist, through educational psychologist, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I found it quite difficult to get into without any kind of relevant uh, experience. You know, that class catch 22 if they wanted some kind of experience, um, even, if, even for junior positions. Um, and then saw this job in the paper. And it was an assistant scientific officer at ASO. I say not a graduate role, but just found a really interesting what they were doing there. Um, I joined um, I joined Darrow part of Air Systems, 
um, and the site that I worked at in Bedford um, is basically flight simulation, flight management and control department. So we did lots of um, flight simulator trials, um, also um, aircraft trials. Um, so started in trials straight away, if you like. Yeah. Um, Analyzing data, being, you know, being the junior person, you were given chunks of data uh, to look at. But um, I have to thank really um, one of the people I was working with back then, Carol Dayton, um, works for DSTL now, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and we worked together for many, 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 maybe only one or two years. Um, but uh, she was part of the, well, she was air system, but she was also a psychologist. And she gave me a great bit of advice, which was to transfer her over to the Centre for Human Sciences, which was a specific department within DERA. Uh, that was about 400 people strong of psychologists, physiologists, um, and um, so really being with kind of, I say, like-minded people, but people that understood a human sciences background and what you could offer. Um, so with her guidance, I transferred across to the Centre for Human Sciences, um, which was based out of Farnborough, no, head, no headquarters mm -hmm. in Farnborough, but I remained at Bedford and was kind of an embedded THS person in Bedford, um, riding the human sciences aspect or human factors aspect of the trial. So learned from Carol initially. Um, she, she then moved on after a couple of years, I think, but um, some, some of my grounding and initial techniques and, and trial techniques, the situation awareness, workload, etc. Um, task classes uh, were from, from Carol. I was the one that I got involved in all these flight trials and simulation trials, um, off, offshore heli deck installations, um, went to European airports doing um, airport ground movement uh, stuff. Did um, lots, lots, lots of trials and evaluations, um, looking at all sorts of aspects of the design, but always from the the person's perspective. So the, the heli deck was what what visual cues does the pilot need to land on the deck, and we were looking at improving the lighting and marking to make it a easier and safer. Most importantly, it worked with CAA to change the heli deck and lighting and marking to make it um, safe for, for, for landing. Um, to create night and poor visibility. Um, so always looking at, at the user information requirements, looking at workload levels, looking at situational awareness um, and, and ease of use. Um, so I spent 15 years in, in the aviation world really. From there I moved from Bedford, I moved down to Boston Down and worked for uh, Kinetic, a bit of a company like by then, um, in aircraft testing evaluation. Um, and, and that was all about two aspects, equipment being um, safe, and, and fit for purpose, safe and effective. Um, and we tested there any, any new bit of equipment that came in um, to be fitted to the aircraft or a whole new aircraft, a whole new avionics suite, a whole new brand new aircraft. And, uh, and again, um, look at, looking at the ease of use and, and the effectiveness and the workload and FA and all that sort of stuff. And also wider stuff like clothing, integrating, integrating the person into the machine. Um, so, 15 years of aircraft, and, and then, yeah, the last seven years in, in my current role. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. It sounds like you've had some um, really quite cool projects to work on um, and, and a really broad range um, of, of different things. Do you think that 
with this move to there's a lot more being done in simulation there's a lot more being done um uh, like computer mock-ups computer aided design that type of thing do you think it's it we, we sort of maybe losing some of the fun areas to go and um to go and trial and assess because so much has been done um done synthetically or do you think there's still some really cool projects to go out and play with well i don't know i mean i did lots of flight simulation right right from the start but um also when i was at boston i went to um orange benson where they have a huge air crew training facility um, and that's all been synthetic training and thing, synthetic trials um and um and it was still fun and it was still exciting it's still um interacting with the product and having that hands-on kit um to be a real real, real kit fitted into the, the simulators um but but even if you if you think removed from that and you think about vr and ar i, I find that all, it, it's all still hands-on interactive stuff it might be a virtual world you're interacting with but you're still interacting with the world so i think um no i think it's all good yeah i think fundamentally i guess you're you know you're still interacting with the people aren't you you're still interacting with um the users that you're uh, you're engaging yeah. with and um as much as they do like to try and throw you curveballs and things like that, that that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, as long as you don't start treating it like a video game and you really, you know, you understand what, what you're trying to do in the real world, um, then, then it will, yeah, fine. Which leads us into sort of the, I guess, our, our main topic really quite nicely. Um, you already mentioned some of the different um, trials that you've been involved in. Um, but how, how do you know... Um, that your trial has gone well. How do you know that you've got uh, you've got satisfaction out of what what you've done? Um, well, I guess the main thing to me, and, and, and what I always say, is to make sure you answer the exam question. So understand what the exam question is first of all. What's the aim? What's the objective? What are you trying to get out of the assessment? And you've done your job if if you've achieved that at the end of it, and, and you know you've, you've set out, you've answered what you set out to do, and you've and you've gathered good data. And um, you, you've examined it in detail and, and come out with a conclusion, robust conclusion and recommendations at the end of it. Um, so, I mean, I've been involved in various different types of trials and assessments, uh, and, and they have differing aims, and you have to tailor what you're doing depending on what the aims are. So, it could be more a kind of a acceptance or assurance of a, mm. of a finalized design you're just trying to understand for example what what is the workload level associated with operating that system um is it of an acceptable level um versus sort of more product development design and development iterative type assessments and evaluations where you're you you've got a, you've got a design but you're looking to see whether it's usable you're looking to see whether it's, it's good enough mm -hmm. um whether it's an intuitive interface whether the users understand what they need to do with it uh, how to interact with it, whether it gives them the right information, um, how, how demanding, how mentally demanding is it. Um, and that, that's where there might be the opportunity to feed back into the design um, and modify and improve. You might find there's a key piece of information that they need that isn't presented to them, for example. Um, yeah, in terms of their situation awareness, you know, is, is there something that they haven't got which they need? Um, is, is there a control aspect on there that's something they need to interact with which, which isn't there uh, functionally? Um, so we do look at functional aspects as well. Um, so I guess back to your original question, you, you, you have to understand what the aim and objective is first, and then you design a trial to make sure you try to meet that aim and objective um, and design it right depending on what you're trying to achieve, if that makes sense. 
No, it does, and it, I think it's some of the some of the examples that you've highlighted, like um, how how does a pilot land on on, on a heli deck? How does um, how does them sort of things happen? They, you're not in an academic, um, beautifully pristine lab, um, usability lab, or anything like that. Um, how do you, what are their main big differences between sort of I, I guess doing a, a proper academic study or an academic um, trial or assessment and what you've done in industry? Hmm. I guess there's sometimes there's limitations. There's limitations to what you can achieve. There's limitations around uh, numbers of participants. Um, quite often have um, opportunity samples, shall we say. Um, you haven't necessarily always got. It's not so strict. Uh, this control of variables. We obviously control variables. Um, yeah. But it, 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 it isn't a lab, it, it, it's real world. Um, so you can have curveballs, you know, coming in. Um, so, I, I don't know, I, I guess it just has to be, I was going to say practical, but um, you, you, have to, you have to learn to adapt and run with what you've got. You know, you have to overcome obstacles if, if something isn't um, ideal, you just have to run with it and um and see where it takes you um I, I guess you need to think about the practicality of the tools you use and the measures you use um the, the time skills you have are usually quite limited um they're usually quite you know short turnaround um you know sometimes equipment needs to be assessed in, in short time scale, particularly my last job you know we, we had had things that with equipment that was going out needed for people on the front line and we need to look at it um i wouldn't say we we don't have i don't want to say um we don't have high standards we still have high standards we still do robust assessments um to get um sound conclusions and recommendations uh but we're not trying to research something we're trying to understand the equipment and how it fits the user's needs um, and does it help them do their job and can they do their job safely and effectively? Um, so we're trying to get the nub of it being usable mm. rather than trying to generate a body of research or um, apply models um, to something. That, you know, we're not just trying to find something that might be interesting. Um, we're trying to see whether the equipment is usable. Um, so do you think it's fair to say that you, because you, you stressed quite early on that as you've got to really understand what your question is, what, what, what is the exam question that you're trying to play with? Yeah. I guess with the amount of experience you've got, you've kind of, if, if you get thrown a curveball, you, you can make a judgment call on whether that's going to affect whether you can answer your exam question or you, it's still going to be good enough to, to get through that um, and, and be able to play with that sort of thing. Yeah. I think that's fair to say, yeah. yeah. So, I guess that does take us on to then. You've you've got to be able to plan these sort of assessments. If somebody's coming at this from scratch and they're they're maybe fairly new into it, what are the uh, what are the big what are the high points in when you're trying to plan or uh, conduct a um, a trial or an assessment? So I think the biggest thing to me is getting the measures right. So. What are, you, what are you trying to measure and how are you going to measure it? There's a, there's a whole body of um, measures out there, subjective rating scales, etc. Uh, and you need to pick 
the right one again going back to what are you trying to um what are you trying to get out of the, the study or the evaluation what what was your aim and what is the objective um but context really is everything so you need to consider what's the fidelity of your trial what what, what, what sort of um assessment or evaluation are you doing are you are you looking at a static representation is it, is it or is it a, a more dynamic um interactive um simulation that you've got is it just a, a part task that you're asking people to do or is it representative of a fully mission representative scenario so are you are you for example asking someone to interact with a single system um or where in reality there'd be juggling between multiple different systems during the course of what they're doing over the course of the mission um, um you also need to think about what sort of what sort of data you you want um the frequency of the data um so I mentioned before about the, the sort of type of assessment, you know, is it, is it a development design iteration or is it acceptability? And, and that might, acceptability and, and pegging benchmark, baselining the workload, and that might um, make you go one way or the other with a particular scale, um, particularly the workload scale, um, where some are more worded towards it. does the system need redesigning, whereas others are more around what is your workload level and, and um, do you have spare capacity like the bedford scale etc and, and the redesign one is the modified piece of hardware um, you need to think about you know yeah are, are different dimensions of workload relevant or you know are there different aspects to the task that you're asking them to do um, are they pertinent to what you're asking them to do um, or do you only need a, a single measure you know what what is the workload um, and that's what I mean by context. It then depends on the context of the task and what you're asking them to do. Um, you know, there's no point in giving them a, a multi-dimensional scale like um, NASA TLX or something if actually those different, uh, they wouldn't be able to make decisions around those different dimensions and they're not actually relevant to the task of what they're, they're doing. Um, also, whether you're wanting to gather multiple points of data or just a single point of data at the end. So is it workload for the whole task? Or is it those different tasks at points throughout the mission, um, or the tasks you're asking them to do? Uh, and that comes down to again understanding how to use scales like workload scales, and making sure that you don't just end up with data and you just get a load of numbers, but you don't actually know what those numbers relate to. Mm -hmm. So it's always really important, I found, or I've learned, to relate the workload score to a task or an aspect of what they're doing. So if they give you a, you know, a, a rating of five, or What's that, what that five relate to? What were they doing? Um, and, and, and always back it up by supplementary comment. You know, even if you get ratings throughout the sortie and you're asking them at the end, you know, what, what was that five? You know, what was that five relate to? Um, some, some scales lend themselves to being asked during the trial and during an assessment because uh, they're not too intrusive. It's a single number you're asking for them. It's a easy to understand concept like spare capacity. Um, and you can quite ask easily wait till like a you know, you've had the high workload event that you're interested in, it calms down and then you ask them for the workload rating for the event that's just happened. So that's the pegging it to a particular task. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can just say, and why was that? And you can just write down a couple of words as to what was causing your particular um, workload rating and then follow it up in a debrief afterwards. Um, so that's if you want workload throughout. You might just want a, you know, do a task, it's a short task, I know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you ask them a workload at the end. And it might be appropriate to just ask them for that entire task that they, they were doing. So it's, it's really understanding what's an appropriate 
an appropriate measure um, and, um, and how meaningful it is to what you're trying to get out. Um, so picking the right measure is, is important for that. Um, there's no point picking a general situation awareness scale if it isn't actually really going to tell you anything because the dimensions are quite generic. I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not dismissing those scales as a time and place for them, but, um, but only if it's going to be meaningful, you might be better just asking some questions about specific bits of information that they know that they need to do the tasks. So I think sort of going back to your industry academia question, probably a better answer is about that we're really understanding the task and what do they need to do the task and, and does the system we give them help them to do that task. Um, so you might, if you know the task and what information you need, you might ask them um, specific questions about their level of awareness of that particular bit of information or a particular parameter, um, whether you was aware of their fuel state on an aircraft, for example, mm -hmm. that's something that's really important. Um, and, and not to dismiss objective data as well, it is equally important as subjective, I think. Um, you know, you can get a lot from, um, did, did they make errors? Um, or um, if, you, if you put something specific into a, into a, into a scenario, uh, to, to turn it into a stressing scenario and you may put a failure in. Did they notice the failure? You know, was it something they were supposed to check every 10 minutes and they didn't actually notice? Um, it may be you um, okay, froze the system uh, parameter and they didn't actually notice it or something. And, that, and that's something that is quite good with um, the simulation. That's the sort of stuff you mm. can inject and, and build up a scenario to test the specific aspects you want, um, particularly if you wanted to test a specific particular item of display. Um, then you can get them to interact with that particular aspect by designing the scenario. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, that's, all the, that's all the planning. Uh, that all comes down to planning. You need yeah. to plan those aspects. You need to plan your scenarios. You need to plan your measures. You obviously need to plan, have, have, a, have a trial plan written down with your aim, your objective, um, you know, who, decide who are going to be the participants. Um, much as I said, it was an opportunity uh, basis quite often you still need to make sure they're representative of the right target audience. Um, by opportunity, I'm more meant you don't necessarily mean know how many people you're going to have access to, etc. but yeah. you've got always the right type of people. Um, so, um, but I mean, a lot of my stuff in uh, my work in the aircraft testing evaluation was really just me and the test pilot. So academia would probably say, well, you, only, you only evaluated it with one person. Yes. Well, yes, but he's a trained evaluator <laughs> as a test pilot, and as part of the training of being a test pilot, you can put yourself into the shoes of a, of a line pilot and have, have the same level of training as you. So, yeah, you know, one pilot versus it's not about necessarily getting the right numbers of people through to put stats, uh, statistics onto it. So we're, we're not aim, trying to meet a, a hypothesis and generate statistically significant data. Mm, yeah. um, we're trying to get the representative end user of a system um, interacting with the system and seeing if it's fit for purpose with an acceptable level of workload and whether it provides them with all the information they need that's where the SA comes in um, and that's where you can quite often get to that better by more targeted specific questions than the, the generic scales quite often. And that's got to have been quite, uh, I was going to say luxury, being able to have a, a participant who you can, you know, quite relatively well, you trust um, and that type of thing. Because certainly in the defense industry, the number of um, the number of people in the end, in the target user 
audience is normally quite small comparatively anyway. So being able to have them sort of people just on tap to use must have been brilliant. So you mean the test pilot one of working mm, with the test yeah. pilot? Yeah, and we'll, we work together all the time. We, we work hand in hand with the, with the test pilot. So, um, yeah, they're, they're always experts with the aircraft. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it was great. Yeah. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So when you're putting together this sort of um, an assessment of, of any sort of description, kind of where do you go for inspiration? Because I, as you said, there's, there are... You know, there's loads of different tools out there. There's loads of different methods. Um, it's almost like a smorgasbord of you can pull almost anything that you want in. Um, where do you go for your inspiration? And I guess, what, what, what do you like using? Yeah, well, I guess because I've been doing this for a while now, uh, I kind of have my, my preferred go-to method, if you like. Um, uh, so I quite like the Bedford um, workload rating scale, and that's not just because I used to work at Darabird. <laughs> Uh, although with RE, but RE back in the day then when it was developed, um, just because it is a simple, straightforward, easy to apply scale, it's a single number, but like I said before, pegged towards something, so a single number but relating to something. Um, it's quite an easy uh, concept for people to understand, the concept of spare capacity, because um, I think that's the other aspect that I probably should have touched on earlier, um, is it depending on who you've got in doing your assessments. Um, if they're not, say, for example, a trained test pilot um, and a more a lay user, how easy to understand are some of these scales? Yeah. I know we sometimes as HF people struggle to understand or discriminate between some of the different classifications. And if we're struggling to describe it to someone, then again, that comes down to how meaningful is the data because if people don't understand the different descriptions, then they're not going to give you a meaningful measure because they're not really giving you the answer to the question you're trying to ask. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I like Bedford Scale because it's, it's simple and it's easy and it's straightforward. But that's only when it's the right scale. Um, mm. If I was looking at um, you know, things with design improvements, I might tend more towards the modified people halfer. If I wanted to look at different um, dimensions of workload, then there's an the TLX. So it's about picking the right one that's for the task. Um, Bedford one is probably my most, most used. Um, mm. But I guess, again, that is because of what I was using it for because I, I spent all, all the time I did in aircraft testing and evaluation, that was more about, um, you know, is the workload level acceptable rather than trying to do, uh, uh, be involved in the design. Um, where I am now is more about um, being involved in the design and iterating the design. So the last assessment I did that looked at any workload aspects used mod- modified through But situation awareness, I developed my own questions um, to understand, you know, what level of situation awareness they had. And um, I also developed some of my own questions on some of the system usability scale. That's another one, another one of my go-to. But again, I didn't use the whole thing if I didn't think it wasn't. Some of the questions weren't applicable to what I was asking the people to do. Yeah. You can't ask a question that's not going to be able to answer. Um, so I picked the dimensions that were relevant, and then I developed some of my own um, of that kind of style. So I found the bloody bloody blah easy to use, um, a specific aspect 
to do X, Y, Z, and then, you know, um, strongly agree, strongly disagree, or, um, so they were targeted this particular task that I was asking them to do, because I wanted to understand the user use of conducting that particular task with the interface that I was giving them. Um, so, yeah, so I have, I have my go-to ones. Um, if I was looking at something slightly different, had a different, um, different aim, a different objective, I would do an internet search, or actually even before that, I'd probably just ask my colleagues. I'm in a mm -hmm. fortunate position, as you know, in our, our team, we work in the same place at the moment. Um, and there's a, a huge breadth of experience within the team. Uh, we're quite a large team and we have everything from a you know recent graduate to people with I don't know, uh, 20 plus more even, I don't know how many years experience uh, people have. 30 probably uh, years experience in, in human factors. So um, I had to do something recently where I, I needed a, a scale with uh, to do the comfort levels. Mm. Uh, and that's not something I've really um, touched on in the past. Um, so the first thing I did was, was ask my colleagues. Um, if they weren't able to come up with them, Google would have been my friend. But, <laughs> yes. um, you know, um, th there is a reference that we have in, in the defense world, uh, which was uh, an HFI uh, DTC, which is a Defence Technology Centre, they, they've rebranded it now, I think, to, to is it DTIC now, um, it keeps on changing its name, um, which is here practice design and evaluation methods review, which was um, a review of all various different uh, scales and rating scales. Um, uh, I, I believe that might have been published into a, uh, into a, a book. reference book. Yeah, um, so it, I think it's the um, Human Factors Methods techniques and methods so it's the big blue book um that it's the only way i remember it. um but they uh led by uh, neville stanton yeah um but yeah i think it, and he led the work into that um that, that paper as well so um and, and that outlines things like advantages and disadvantages of um the various different scales and where are they suitable to use because they've already been developed for different purposes um and and you shouldn't be using one if the type of assessment you're doing doesn't Mm. meet meet what it was designed for um so if you're asking if you're asking a situational awareness scale for example um and um you're asking them about their overall awareness and um but they're only they're only doing part tasks they're only actually interacting with one system where normally they'd be juggling lots of stuff and you know about the, the the division of attention and things like those those sorts of questions where it's not really a fair question or you wouldn't be getting meaningful data if you're asking that question when actually you put them in a scenario where they're not having to divide their attention like they would normally you're only asking for it and correct with one particular system that's up and right up in front of them and not having to do all the rest of their normal job so that's one where i'd sort of say well maybe that isn't the right skill to use um and yeah. you pick something else um, but i guess with um, a lot of this as long as for as you say you you go back to your big question um if you can as long as you fully understand what your question is like say if you could get to the references um get google whatever uh you need to be able to relate whatever it is you're choosing back to the original question and it'll give you to it's got to give you that evidence to 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 do that hasn't it yeah yeah absolutely um we're not just generating evidence for the sake of it um we're looking to see like say is it, is it, is it, is it usable mm. It's um, yeah. So certainly, there's 
there's a lot of variation because again you look in some of the me methods and people have, have tweaked them slightly um they might have only changed one small variable but suddenly you come up with an entirely new method that's got a similar but slightly different acronym or or whatever um but what i do like about it and, and you sort of touched on it is that the human factors world or the human factors discipline does seem to be one of these sort of places that you can just go and ask people and people will be um on the whole very um sharing and, and give you the benefit yeah. of, their, of their expertise um so you i think you've been quite lucky as well because i think you've worked in basically the three largest hf departments in the uk at their, at their varying times so because yeah. chs was certainly the last largest of its time it was, i was kind of remote um it, uh, well once carol left even though she wasn't uh CHS she was air system, she was obviously psychology and human sciences background. I was the only person at Bedford, uh, yeah. human factors, um, or human sciences. Um, and then um, and when I was at Boscombe, Boscombe Town, um, uh, we were a bigger team, maybe eight, nine people when I was there, but, but still a, a sub little team yeah. compared to the 400 people at Farnborough Field. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So fully integrated in, in, uh, in CHS Farnborough, but yes. Um, certainly fortunate in the places I've worked with and, and and I guess while we're talking about the other people I've worked with the other person I really have to thank is um, Julia Scriven uh, so it was Julia's group that I joined down at Boscombe Down so um, so my initial learning from from you know HF techniques from, from Carol were then um, extended by by Julia when I went to Boscombe Down and, and, and you know, she was the one that taught me how to do um, you know Aircraft testing evaluation, you know. <laughs> cool. It's um, so. I guess once you've once you've done your trial, you've you've come up with some numbers, probably some quantitative, some qualitative. Uh, you know, your outputs. That's all going to be in a state that really, if you just handed that to your client, they're not really going to understand what it means. Be that you know your end customer or who it is you're trying to say that yes, it is usable or no, I've got some input for you to um, to consider in your next design review. Um, how do you deliver your results in, in a way that is actually meaningful? Well, again, it depends what I'm doing, but going from thinking back to my, my experience, you know, in, um, in the aircraft world, we, we delivered release to service recommendations. So, um, you know, I, I have my single, single subject data, if you like, uh, single participant data. Um, but we'd look at the equipment and we'd look at any um, required modifications to the equipment um, to make it safer or to make it more effective. Um, and um, it was all risk-based risk reporting. Um, so um, there had to be some sort of hazard associated with it. So um, it wasn't making it better just for the sake of it. There had, there had to be some sort of consequence that we were avoiding by, um, by improving the equipment. Mm -hmm. So there the were recommendations for modification, and there was um, advice to aircrew, advice to maintainers, etc. If um, you found something that a feature of the system that you thought should be in in the um, training material or the reference material for the aircraft, so it was very, that was very real world because the release to service recommendation we made went through to the aircraft release to service when when the equipment went into service. Um, in terms of now. Um, it's, I think it's just coming up with clear conclusions and recommendations and again saying what does that data mean. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at the various different aspects you're looking at 
um, during the assessment. Quite difficult, by the way, when you know, not not talking about a specific system. Yes. Just yes. in general terms, but yeah, if you're trying to look at specific aspects of the system, and if, if you did have a number of different users, um, again, you'd look at if there were any themes for anything that they had difficulty with, which might have some sort of modification, anything that caused confusion, anything where errors were made, they they, they selected the wrong control or the control the wrong way or they weren't sure what to do at any point in, in, in the um, in the scenario that you were um, enacting during the assessment um, and, and that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm mainly talking about sort of simulation assessments here but that could be that could be the same in a physical assessment if there was difficulty in accessing something or, or any awkwardness in your posture or um, a stressed posture rather than a neutral posture. Um, so any, any, anything that caused any difficulty that again that might need modification or if you had all these people through and they encountered no difficulties um, and everything was seen it was easy to use and intuitive, you'd, you'd report that too. If, it, if mm -hmm. it totally made sense to them and their mental model and they had absolutely no trouble working out what to do and um, didn't identify any additional information requirements, they were, they were always aware of what was going on, um, there was no, no point where we observed, you know, they were confused or not aware or um, actually they thought that something was happening when something else was happening and, and we knew different because we'd designed the scenario. Um, yeah, just, just giving clear, concise conclusions and recommendations um, and I, I guess the differentiation is between um, recommending further work you know the, the customer doesn't want further work or we need to do another study he wants yes. to know from what you're you've just done um and i guess that's a different maybe an academia difference as well um that um yes you could look at things in more detail but you, you've been asked to look at something and you need to conclude from that one study um not not i can't tell from this i need to do something else um yeah, I, I don't think that's just an academia thing. I think there's um, there's always that hankering, isn't there, to or that temptation to to put in um, this needs further study. When actually, you're quite right. That's not what you've been asked to do. Um, okay. Now, the conclusion might be that, that you've there does need to be further work done, but you still need to come up with a conclusion. Oh, absolutely. On what you've done. If, if something's been uncovered in the assessment that you can't comment on sufficiently. You absolutely need to say, I can't comment on this bit sufficiently and it would need to be evaluated. But that again comes down to maybe the limitations of the assessment because of something mm -hmm. maybe you weren't able to assess within the scope of what you had available. So um, a particular aspect you couldn't evaluate and therefore you can't comment on. Um, but again, that comes down to limitations, exclusions, etc. And I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm coming across anti-academic here. I'm, I'm not <laughs> just that there's um, some of your questions are leading me that way, Barry. Um, but it, obviously, there's a there's a place for practical, um, real-world application, if you like, industry-type um, evaluations, and there's also a place for academia and research and evaluations and, and learning. Um, but it's just they're just different. Yes. No. I, I know exactly where you're coming from. So. I said you've got you've got a, a quite a vast amount of experience in in doing um, different types of assessments, different types of trials. Which one have you enjoyed most? Which one sticks in your mind as 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 something? Wow, that was really cool. 
uh, well, that has to be a aircraft simulator study that I did um, at Benson that I mentioned earlier, I Benson, um, where I, I put, put the test pilot through, oh, that's true, um, two test pilots in, in the aircraft. Um, and with another test pilot, I developed a particularly intensive four-hour sortie where things were not always going to go right. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to exercise particular bits of equipment in the cockpit. We wanted to test specific specific elements. Um, so um, if you wanted them to do something, you put something in the scenario that would force them to operate in a certain way or would force yep. them to operate a certain bit of equipment in a certain way or to re-plan. I don't know, maybe they um, maybe we drop the weather down so that they couldn't land on the, the airfield that they were planning to go into and they, they had to um, divert to an alternative airfield, which meant that they had to you know, utilise the equipment in the cockpit to re-plan. Um, the day to night sortie, so they were you know, started off in the day and then had to transition into conventional night flying and on to NVGs. Uh, they were dressed up in the um, most bulkiest restrictive um, <laughs> equipment assembly. Um, but because it was theatre representative, body armour, etc., but again, fatiguing. Um, and it was fully representative, so we did everything from um, the test pilot planned it with me, um, it gave a brief of what the mission was, they did their they did their pre-flight prep, they prepared their maps, they had a net brief, they you know, did everything they would like a normal sortie. So that's an example of a fully representative. They've done all the activities that they would, not just the flight activities, but the pre-flight. Yeah. The yeah. and the workload, etc. And then I put them through a four-hour sortie. <laughs> and I was on, on, on headphones. And uh, we had uh, people, simulator instructors, to do this for a living, um, injecting in the failures and dropping the weather down and being all the different um, voices on the radio and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was just really good fun because it was, um, you, you had you had, a, you had an objective uh, of what you wanted to test and then you, you, you found a way that you can test it, you know, with, with someone that knew what you could put into the scenario to, to exercise what you were wanting to exercise. Um, I want to make them use this bit of equipment. How can yeah, you yeah. do that, you know? Um, and it's just, it's just really good fun. Um, Vicky, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about this. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, if you're happy, I'll put your LinkedIn contact details um, yeah, sure. um, into the um, into the description, um, into the podcast description. I'll also put in the links to the references we were talking about um, in terms of where to go for extra information around um, trials, uh, trials and planning. Um, but for now, I'd just like to say thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. And... Um, to those of you who are listening, then um, thank you very much for your time and attention. And we'll look forward to seeing you at the next episode of the 1202 The Human Factors podcast. Thank you for listening to 1202 The Human Factors podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense. <laughs>